John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 428.1C1533, certificate number 47957, Eternal September. Every day, America Online is making it easier for people to live, work, and play. Hey, Dan, ready for the game? I'm just finishing up here with my new kayaking friends. Kayaking friends on your computer? Yeah, I just got America Online. Sounds great. Listen, I can't go to the game today. What? I've got to send something for my mom's birthday. It's tomorrow. I'll then book plane tickets for our trip next week, and my kids got to go to the library to look up dinosaurs. Hey, we can take care of all that before we go. Yeah, right. Oh, with America Online. America Online can do all that. So even though on the show it's a, it's kind of a running truism that I am of the two of us, the senior in age, experience, prowess. Senility. Size, weight. <laughs> which of these th- adjectives have senior? Like, <laughs> so uh, would you, which burger would you like? I'll have the senior one. Well, do you remember A&W Root Beer had a, had a dad burger, a mom burger, a son burger, and a daughter burger? They did? Back in the 1970s. Creepy. You would go in and you'd say, I'll have a daddy burger and... Wow. And a, but a... But a daughter milkshake. I don't like it when you call me Daddy Burger. <laughs> you can call me Daddy Burger, though. Do you remember when NW Burger had the third pound burger because they were trying to one up McDonald's quarter pound? And it failed because most People Americans. Couldn't tell the difference. Americans, well, Americans <laughs> thought like, one third was smaller than one fourth. Yeah, right. They were like, oh, why am I paying more? This is smaller than a quarter pounder. It's like three it's instead third. of four. It's three pounder instead of four pounder. Yeah, well, uh, so but you're the senior. So in most cases, right? Uh, except in my daughter said the other day, she said, "You and Ken are both smart, but I feel like if you ask Ken a question, he gives you a quick answer, and if you ask you a question, you get a long answer." Boy, she has really summed up Omnibus, hasn't <laughs> and she? I was like, "Huh, that is true." She was like, "Yeah, Ken just gives you the answer to the question, whereas you always." Have a story. Well, that's our that's our shtick. That is our. I shtick. got famous. I mean, not answering questions, but responding to clues in the form of a question very quickly. Quickly, you got to yeah, do it quickly, or you lose. Quickly. Whereas you, if you if you give the quickest possible answer to every question, that is not a podcast. Yeah, what the heck? My shows would be six minutes long. <laughs> uh, but it's also it's in kind of a Myers Briggsy thing, right? It's a, it's something intrinsic to the way that you uh, think and and export information, and, and same same is true for me. I guess. Well, in in the in my in my case, it would be maybe the um, 
I kind of have a very glib, facile view of questions where I'm interested in I'm interested in the quick answer, the surprising yeah, fact, the, the, the surprising reveal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Glib, um, glibness is a good way of describing, I and mean, also your sense of humor, puns. Well, I've always liked just quite, you know, one thing that appeals to me about trivia and game shows is just like a question that has an answer, where the exercise is not exploring the answer, <laughs> exploring the implications of the answer, yeah, or exploring my feelings and history with the answer, but it's really just about you know solving that puzzle and either getting the Getting a little adrenaline spike or not. Right. Whereas you're a storyteller. Yeah. You're, you're, you're an artist. Oh. You're a raconteur. Like uh, the questions in rock songs don't have quick answers because they're more like, who am I or why did she leave? Yeah, right. I mean, when you think about it, every, every time you ask me a question, I start with, well, when the continents originally... As the earth cooled... <laughs> Yeah, that's right, and and uh, and I think that that's a pretty that's that is a good summation, and it's why it's why we like each other. You you give me uh, the quick answer to the question, and then I re-explain it to you. I, I don't bore you, and you bore me. It's a it's a fair trade. <laughs> I slow you down, and you speed me. Up. There we go. Um, but in one regard, I am uh, I am the summer child in our relationship, and that is well i mean in two ways the the first one of us to make it to having earned a million dollars in a year but also uh there's also marriage and marriage and oh right children. marriage marriage and you had children before i did that's right uh and a mortgage before i did right when did you buy your first house Two thousand. Like, i think we had that house right around the time i got on jeopardy so, oh, that would have been early I guess 2003. Yeah. So I didn't buy my first house till 2007. So you were ahead of me there too. But yours might have been nicer. Also, you graduated from college before I did. There were a lot of ways that you beat me to the finish line. We don't actually know when you graduated from college. Was it when you opened that envelope on your microwave? Yeah, I think the the University of Washington might say that I graduated in 2015, but it was a Heisenberg uncertainty diploma until 2017. Yeah, you had, you had Schrodinger's degree. Yeah. Um. But you were also on the internet a long time before I was. My greatest accomplishment. Yeah. You started, you started on the internet. What, what year did you arrive? What year did your Converse tennis shoes cross the threshold of the internet? 1992. 92. And, and I didn't know the internet existed. I still thought of, I think I was vaguely aware that there were bulletin boards where hobbyists could find each other. But the idea that there was some, there was some backbone that, uh, you know, I thought it was the stuff of movies. Michael Broderick putting his phone in that little cradle and somehow getting on a government computer system. Uh-huh. That it, isn't what it was? Uh, well, that's the thing. I thought it was all made up. The idea that all computers would be connected, how would that even work? I still don't believe in it. Uh, so it was, I was a freshman at the University of Washington, and uh, they said, here's your, here's your account. I think I've told this story before, where I thought it was just some internal University of Washington thing that I could use to... Uh, see course materials or yeah or communicate with professor professors and other incoming freshmen and uh for some reason i had contact information for my dad and i had his email address in singapore where my family lived and i remember typing that into an email thinking like wait this is the same format as my university of washington email i wonder what you know just like I'm, i'll do science i'll type in his singapore email and the fact that it got to him Whoa. And he replied, and I just remember thinking, I just remember feeling like Archimedes or Columbus. <laughs> like, how could that possibly, what mechanism got that to Singapore? That doesn't seem possible. 
It you, is, you, you can see how it could have got to the math building across campus. Right. But to Singapore to and Singapore? back. I mean, I still felt like that in 1999. Uh, is that your first email address? My first email address, I guess, was 98. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it kind of blew my mind that I could go in anywhere to an internet cafe. And at the time, I don't know if I've ever told you about my walk across Europe. You walked across Europe? Yeah, once, a long time ago. In 1999, in fact. Are, and, are there any stories related to it? Eh, eh, stick around. Uh, when the continents first... <laughs> at the time, uh, there were not internet cafes in, in every place. And in fact, uh, m- many times I had to go to uh, um, places that you would not think of as as internet cafes. In, in, in Germany at the time, um, they were selling... Uh, internet, they, they were selling the internet as as part of a way of selling computers, and you could go to a department store, and in the de- <laughs> just, just sit in the sample and at just the sample sit model? At the sample thing and actually log on the same way you could go to a piano store and diddle on the keyboard. That's for right, a and and it was such a novelty that that I had an internet that I had an email address that the salesperson would be like, yeah, absolutely, sit down and, you know, use the computer. Take it for a spin, sir. Right. And people, you know. Mind hair. And it would be a little bit like as as shoppers would come by, they'd be like, look, this person, this American right here is sitting <laughs> right in the middle of the department store. Um, but They should have hired you to sit there all the time like Santa Claus. Well, I know, but I was walking email. across Europe. God, how many times do I have to tell you? I, I, had, I left the next day. But sometimes you would take a break to. A couple of days, yeah. But you never relax. took up. You weren't like um, Bill Bixby on The Incredible Hulk. You wouldn't stop, um, take a take a job, take a do some odd jobs for a lonely widow, um, save her farm in some way, and then move on. I did that in the early '80s when I was traveling across the uh, the United States. But you don't care about Europeans' problems. <laughs> but by the time I was in Europe, I had a mission. Look. That your government will take care of your problems. You don't need me. Wandering around the United States for the first time in 1986, I would go into a cafe and say, I'll wash dishes for a meal. And most of the time they were like, no thanks. But I want you to get involved in some kind of local town conflict that you then um, resolve and then walk mournfully out of town to the sad Hulk music. I keep telling my 10-year-old daughter that that... Before, during the junior high years, I'm just going to take her out of school and we're going to drive around the country in a, in an old Winnebago solving crimes. And she's rolled her eyes at me for many years because I've been saying this to her since she was six. And you have and I think, solved no crimes. I, well, because she's not in junior high yet. And I keep, I, as time goes on, I think she's beginning to adopt it as a, as a real possibility. Like, are we going to... Really solve crimes? Is she saying it in a hopeful voice or a worried voice? Nah, a little bit worried. She's she tends to be. Um, she wants to see her friends. She's more. She's she she, wants she's afraid to be you actually will put her in a bus. Yeah. Well, and the problem is that I keep trying to teach her crime fighting, and she's like, "Yeah, I'm, I have swim lessons." And I'm like, "That's a way of fighting crime. You'll be you'll be awkward girl." Most kids love learning crime fighting tips. I think half of my bookshelf at that age was purporting to teach me how to crack codes. <laughs> yeah, right. And dust for prints. Well, we have this book that that a listener gave us: how to hide things in your house. Did you look like, at it? How, oh, you, yeah, it's great. How and how how does one? Is there? Can you give me a, a lot one of ways. sentence? No, I'm not going to tell you about it. It's it's uh, how good would it be if I hid things in my house and then I told you all about it? Maybe we shouldn't have given away the title because now someone can just find a copy of that book and they're going to know how to find each thing in your house. Yeah, right. Well, anyway, I you had the internet in department stores. Weirdly, in 
the very early 1980s, and I'm talking about, what would it have been, 1982, my mom, who was a computer programmer for a job, yes. bought us a, um, a the original 64K IBM PC. And Did she get a discount? Did she work at IBM? No, they were hugely expensive. Um, she didn't work at IBM. We got a Korean knockoff of an Apple too, because it was less hugely expensive. Yeah, the, the PC, you know, it had 64K. And ours, she she got the second disk drive too. So, you know, they came stock with one floppy disk drive, but we had two, so you could make copies. And along with it, she bought a Hayes 300 baud smart modem. Wow. And so I had the gear. And this would have been, you know, Usenet, and I'm telling you something that you probably already know. Uh, but that wouldn't be the first time. But Usenet came online in 1980 as a as like the the prototype of the. I mean, it was the it was the um, civilian ARPANET, and you could access Usenet with this 300 baud modem, but nobody in the house knew how to use it. And when I got a copy of PC World magazine. I couldn't make heads or tails out of it because I, you know, it was already just confusing to me to play Oregon Trail. Like I didn't, I was not inclined to get into computers. I used the PC mostly as a, as a typewriter. I loved WordStar, but I, I plugged in the modem a few times. I got it to work, but I didn't know who to call. Well, that's the thing. I mean, mostly there were, they were pay services back then. Yeah. There was no. Well, Originally, you know, it was, uh, Usenet was, was the province of academics. It was, it was mostly confined to, um, academic contexts. You could access it with, uh, you know, through a college at, at one point in the, in the early period in the eighties of Usenet, like 50% of the users were either PhD candidates or, um, or PhDs, right? It was a, it was a pretty rarefied air there. Um, and so I would have logged on as an eighth grader or, you know, like a ninth grader and said, what to, to whom? Like what? I didn't even know what I was looking for and couldn't, nobody ever told me how and the, and all that stuff, the PC and the, and the, the modem, those were, those cost as much as a small car at the time. That was really expensive stuff. The, the PC was $2,500 in 1982 money. Um, I still have it, by the way. No. Yeah, I do. I have it I have it in, in its original box. I mean, you can use it to play a lot of games that need 64K. And we got the orange monitor, not the... Not the green. We monitor. had one of each. The, apparently, what the the amber was supposed to be easier on the eyes. Easier on the eyes. You had one of each. Well, I mean, you had I think two monitors. No, I think at different times. Oh, I see. And I still remember hooking a, one of those computers up to a color TV, where the you know little a little color TV where the you know the resolution would not the clarity would not be as good, but you could actually yeah because you were see all you your were colors. Uh, jealous of your Commodore sixty four rocking friends, your TRS eighty friends. I really was. I was jealous of IBM friends because they could play games that had 64K and you, yeah. you, we couldn't get 64K in our Apple II memory. No, board. you had 32K. Should we explain what Usenet was? Well, I mean, it's it was an early text-based message board, basically, yes. right? And and one that was set up with um, what was interesting about Usenet 
it was a it was um it was what uh, chronological and in a a sequential the the names form. of the different chat groups were kind of hierarchical right with different top level you know what what would seem like to us a top level domain um right like dot yeah not dot but like news or yeah rec was for recreation so a lot of the most popular one would be rec dot and then it would be dot arts if you wanted to get into you know any kind of discussion group of any band or movie or tv show or you know those would all fall under arts proto reddit a hobby would be under rec dot crafts what were the other top level ones besides rec uh News miscellaneous, um, and then there was comp for computer stuff. Yeah. Oh, there was humanities, humanities. dot, which is funny, like because um, it was it was made for that. It was right. made for uh, for literature departments and philosophy departments. And then there was the then there was alt, which was everything else, which quickly became. A crazy place. Because I think it had, you know, to start a group there, you know, to start a group on one of the official ones, you would need, there was actually, you know, kind of certifying bodies and organizing groups that, that, could, that would approve those, whereas right. alt was the Wild West. And then Anything could happen. What's funny is that, uh, you know, rec would be recreation, but in within alt, all the things that had been not allowed in rec, you would have alt dot rec dot, you know, like, yeah. you, so it wasn't. It wasn't just child porn from the beginning. It was, this was academic, uh, an academic land. And sometimes there was both, you know, like there would be a, an official discussion group of something under rec or psi or whatever. And then there would be the anarchy one. Right. Alt dot that. Well, and this, uh, part of this organizational system and, and what, what was, what was cool about Usenet was that it was dispersed across there w- it was not located on a server. It was dispersed across servers. So in a way, it was a file sharing universe, right? Or uh, it was um, it was up kind of and and disseminated across servers. So not it wasn't you did have a you could have a local server, but it also kind of populated to the world. So in that sense, different from. Um, you know, later BBSs, bulletin yeah. boards. We weren't we weren't hitting a specific server room somewhere. And and what the oh go ahead. Well, I was just wondering what other people used it for. You know, because my ex, my experience of it was just um, you know, using it to find fandoms. By the early nineties, I don't know if this was most of the use or if this was just most of the recreational use. But it would basically you. It was just a place to. It was what the internet became. You a place to find people to argue about your very specific thing. Like in my case, it would be, you know, what had happened uh, last night on Twin Peaks or the new REM record. Um, You could immediately find every day hundreds of people talking about your hobby. And we take that as read today. And that was not true for almost any hobby in the 1980s. And I can only speak from having read about it many times and, and knowing people who were there, I can, I can say that I was sitting on top of my 300 baud Hayes smart modem, but that did not, I didn't get it through the seat of my pants, what was happening. But you can imagine an environment like that, that was, uh, that was just out of scarcity for the most part, confined to either academics who could use it 
within the college context or rich people who could pay the you know, long distance rates or whatever the, whatever the cost of being on Usenet would have been dial up. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you, uh, to what degree it would have been locally callable. I think that happened. Uh, that was part of what was cool about the way that it disseminated to local servers. You could, you didn't have to call long distance. And I think in 1982, there might not have even been a place in Alaska that I could have called locally. I think I, I think part of the thing that inhibited me was I had to call, I had to make a long distance call to even get onto the Usenet. Not that I needed much inhibition. I mean, but, but it didn't stop Matthew Broderick. He, he calls Colorado and yes, he does Virginia. Well, but he also at some point his parents are going to get that bill. He also probably was hacking people's phone cards, mm. and so he had figured it out. Maybe he was freaking. Maybe he was blowing fake dial tones. When 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 War Games came out, I was so jealous because clearly Matthew Broderick. Well, first of all, he was a rich kid. If you look at the house yeah. he's living in, but he was in Seattle, a local boy made good and. You know, his computer hacking not only almost started a nuclear war and got him a free helicopter ride, but he had a cute girlfriend too. And I had none of those things. And maybe if I had just learned to use my 300 baud modem, I would be a different man. To we all had square parents eating raw corn yeah. like his parents do, but we didn't all have access to, uh, you know, Cheyenne Mountain servers. Yeah. He had a suite, right? He had a bedroom and it had there was a lot of space in his bedroom you could have roller skated around in there i mean you're thinking of ferris bueller no 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 it's really i mean technically it's the it's an even better house than ferris that was a matthew broderick's writer in the 80s like i'll be in your movie if i get a sweet bedroom but wait war War games was pre ferris bueller it was yeah by two years maybe um but but you know picture the the culture uh people were not yet really talking about uh star trek or or the new REM record, because it was a somewhat curated environment, people were having smart conversations with other smarts. That was, and, that was what it was first? It, yeah. was, it was actually researchers sharing their findings and... Well, that, and I mean, people arguing about ideas, but people that were knowable... I, I would say we were arguing about ideas in the X-Files... Sure. In rec.arts.xfiles as well. Jim. Yeah. How did you guys feel about uh, REM's record up? Were you, <laughs> were you pro or against? Oh, I was I was off Usenet by that time. Oh, All I my see. Usenet conversations were about out of time and automatic. <laughs> um, and, and so there developed a culture, and it was kind of a natural culture uh, that, that grew up out of a very small community of like-minded people that they recognized some of the early problems with uh, communicating this way, right? No facial expressions. Um, often what would happen is that these local servers would download uh, in big batch processes. So, you know, only a couple of times a day would you, would you suddenly get all of the stuff that had been put up uh, over the course of the last hour. So it wasn't a thing or over the, uh, the last day, it wasn't a thing where it was, the conversations were exactly happening in real time. Um, more, more a thing like from day to day, like you would put stuff up a lot of the time. Uh, the, the batches would download in the middle of the night because, um, phone charges were lower. And so it's a, you know, it was a thing that in the middle of the night, you would suddenly get all of the conversation that had happened that day. Yeah, I would definitely, ch I mean, even in the 90s, I, with, a, with you know, right on the backbone at UW, I would 
you know, check it once a day and there'd be a whole day of new content. It would be like, yeah. look at all this new stuff. You know, it was almost like getting a, cause back then it was all one way, you know, once a month, maybe you'd get a fan magazine about something and you could check it out. But now it's a fan magazine that comes once a day and you can reply. Yeah. 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 Right. Um, I wasn't having lofty conversations on it, but just the real time connection of it was a mind blower. Well, and so, so the, the proto, uh, etiquette or netiquette, uh, developed in this, in these early communities just out of necessity. Right. And, and some of the, you know, some of the, uh, the netiquette, I mean, we still practice a lot of it today uh, on bulletin boards or on message boards, although and message it, boards probably, went away for a long time. And but. there's equivalence in, in social media and blogs and then social media, right? But some of them were, you know, like this is where signatures developed, where you're, you know, you had a username, but, but um, like you could be, you weren't anonymous, um, no multi-posting, um, meaning, you know, you don't just sit and post multiple times on your own posts. Um, no cross posting meaning right, to multiple groups. Yeah. Don't, don't post the same thing to multiple groups because then you have to, if you're following the conversation, you have to go to multiple places and who knows where, I mean, this is this even on message boards today, like I have a message board at, at, uh, I don't mean to, to use this as a platform to promote my own Patreon, patreon.com slash John Roderick. But uh, as a component of that, I have a message board on discourse and it's recapitulating the vibe of message boards in 2001 where everybody kind of knows each other. Everybody is, uh, um, they, they mind their manners and it's a, it's a community that it really reminds me of the long winters message board from the beginning of our rock career. What's the era there? That's, that's early 2000s. Yeah. Right? 2002, we had our first message board and, um, and you know, fans from around the world, it was always astonishing. Like, wait a minute, you're posting from Norway. Like, who are you? Amazing person. A lot of like relationship or, you know, you would get a sense of who these people are and maybe you didn't even know their real name and it would be like, you know, yeah. You're, you're Gravstar eight, yeah. you know, or, or whatever. And we saw that in our early tours, we would play Boston and after the show, we'd be sitting at the merch table and we would watch people who knew each other from the message board meet for the first time in person. And a lot of times they spawned actual IRL relationships and people dated each other, moved across the country to be with their, their friend that they met on the death cab message board i mean it was a it was pretty exciting we know we have friends who uh who um met and married by meeting on one of those kind of early 2000s forums um you know matt fraction and kelly sudaconic yeah that's right that's right uh and you know that's a pre-dating site but of course these were basically dating sites in a in a weird way um but also, you know, no off-topic posting. That was another netiquette thing. No hijacking threads. But also, uh, even very early, no all-caps posts. It was yeah. even then seen as aggressive, yelly, like, don't all-caps me, bro. It's funny how that there appears to be something. It can't be, of course. It's got to be cultural. But there almost seems to be something inherent about all-caps. Just the, the number of pixels that are activated makes the... 
makes the words seem aggressive in a way. You know, it's not just that we had to be taught that that was bad, that really it kind of inherently seems to look bad. Yeah, to a you're lot taking of up my screen with all your... Why are your letters so tall? Letters. I have to admit, I was not always... You know, in the early days of the internet, when it, we were just treating it like a toy, you know, it didn't, I didn't always, even though I was using it to keep up with friends at, at schools back East, um, that was one of the main things I used it for. You know, we would often just find some weird form where we thought people were being weird and then there was no name for it. But You'd we be were, so random. But, but we were just, we would just like kind of annoy them. Yeah. And we thought, ah, you know, we, to us, it was just some harmless Merry, merry Pranksters thing and we'd get kicked off in a minute. And of course today it's like. Yeah, that that's terrible behavior. You know, don't go to somebody else's space and just troll them because you're bored. There's literally no nobody who likes that and no upside to it. But I remember a friend of mine and I going to like a Winnie the Pooh themed chat board where they would always be just be giving each other pots of misspelled honey and hugs, and uh, you know we would just be posting ir- irritating uh, uh, and ASCII penises and stuff. No, nothing like that. I, I probably said, I've got your hundred acre wood right here. Uh-huh, that's nice. And then I got kicked out. Yeah. Um, but we would just think like, haha, you know, what an innocent good time when really now you, you, you know, I look back and I was like, well, nobody wants that. Well, that was a problem pretty early on. And the first, um, the first kind of identifiable phenomenon was uh, what came to be called the Christmas Ruggies. Ruggies? Ruggies. And it referred to uh, Rugrats as a, di- you know, as a kind of dismissive term for kids who got their first modem at Christmas, who logged on to the Usenet and- And did what I did. And said, I got your hundred acre wood right here. <laughs> and so right after every Christmas, there was- uh, like a brief splash of misbehaving people who had just gotten a modem and, you know, it was a big present. And it's funny and that cool everybody's, I guess when you, like when you give a kid a BB gun and you have to tell them not to shoot a mockingbird, right. you give a kid a modem, the first thing they're going to do is to get up to mischief yeah. and, and then they settle down. Get on there and figure out what's going on and what, and what are they? They're kids that got a modem for Christmas. So they're not, they're logging on to a world where people are busy, uh, discussing STEM theory or whatever. Uh, and they don't know what's being talked about. They don't know what the rules are, but they just, they, uh, they swagger in. But what was true of the Christmas ruggies was that the kids who arrived there either got bored or got Got banned, got bored and left, got bored and left, got banned or, Wanted to be there, settled down, figured out the rules, yeah. and so it I mean, that's was true of any situation. Right, it's true of new people arriving at a party or a university too. Ken, your hair is looking good. It didn't used to. Hair <laughs> looked terrible. It used to look really bad, and now it's looking full and puffy. And and uh, what 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 are you doing differently? I feel like my hair was getting a little bit thin. Mm. Um, but there's something you can do about that now. Again, we live in the future. It's an age of wonders. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, not all of us have the opportunity to be on national television. And I don't know, with all of the kerfuffle and hullabaloo, have you thought maybe that your hair was playing a role? I do actually get seen from behind a lot on The Chase, which made me think about uh, whether or not I was getting a bald spot up there. But there's no there's no shame if you do. Two out of three 
guys are going to experience male pattern baldness like in their early 30s. Right. You know, and then it just, it just, the numbers tick up from there. Um, so while you still have hair left, it's, it's really hard to get it back. But while you still got it left, you can, you can slow that roll. Slow the roll. And, uh, and even re- in some cases, reverse hair loss. Reverse the roll. By getting FDA approved uh, medicaments. But where do you get them? I mean, do you go to the drugstore and stand there just holding up different medicaments and trying I mean, to figure out what to it's do? It's worse than that. Sometimes they even require a prescription. Oh. Um, so I recommend keeps. So you don't have to go to your doctor's office to get a prescription or consult on which remedy is right for you. Yeah. With keeps, you just do that doctor's visit online and then the medication gets delivered straight to your home. Oh, that sounds a lot better. Um, no drugstore lines, uh, no doctor's visits. Uh, it's uh, it's the right way to do it. Is there any other uh, hair loss uh, purveyor that has more five-star reviews than Keeps? Yeah, there's several. No, <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Lol. Let me tell you, Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors, more than 100,000 satisfied clients. Uh, you know, they pass those savings along to you. John. Is it expensive? No, the treatment started just $10 a month. And let's off, should we offer our listeners uh, a little something here? You know, I'm feeling generous to our listeners. Why don't we give them, let's say your first month free. I don't know. That's a pretty good deal. I think so. Let's do it. Let's that's do it. Just for our friends at Omnibus. We can afford it. If you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash omnibus. And receive your first month of treatment for free. That's K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. And Ken and I are going to ensure that you get your first month free. K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. I mean, when you think about elitism in any small group, um, this is elitism on top of elitism. It's not just academic elitism, but it's the academics in STEM fields who are internet savvy, who are Unix coders, you know, who, uh, are, are programming pre mouse and, um, they do not want a bunch of Christmas kids in Canada. The, the word for it was, um, uh, Christmas modem kitties, uh, or <laughs> once, CMK. Once again, they just have a less, uh, a less appealing version of our yeah, thing. Christmas ruggies. Um, Although Christmas ruggies sounds like it would be the British one. Yeah, right. Rugrats. I mean, you could see you could see where that would come up. I do. Um, how long would it? How long do you think it would take people to settle down? Like, how long did Christmas last? It seemed to be a pretty quick, like week long process where where there were suddenly all these people that didn't know what the rules were posting. Um, you know got wood, you know, where's the beef memes or whatever it would have been in, in the mid eighties. And then they just dissipated and and it got actually to the point that some, um, some boards would briefly suspend new members, you know, briefly suspend new credentials for a period or two right after Christmas. Um, I mean, this is, that's a feature of net, the descendant of netiquette today. It's not, it's not, calendar related but often somebody who's signing up new to a thing will either have to have be approved by a moderator and then might have limited privileges can't be post new topics for example or right you know a gradual introduction so they build in a gradual introduction whether it's in december or not and this is you know this is when moderators are first being employed people that are you know that take on that responsibility 
but the as uh, as universities more and more, you know, the, er, the early uh, Usenet, it was you know when it, when a new university had the the uh, the capability to join the Usenet, it was always a, a big moment. Like, oh wow, look, the University of Leeds is online now. Like, how exciting! But still, a small group of people within the university that want to be there. But as universities started to embrace this uh, this technology widely, it was as you saw when you joined the University of Washington or when you when you enrolled at the UW, it was a thing that was offered to new students. Um, you could log on to the Usenet, and I don't even think you you could opt out necessarily, except just by not using it. You by would just be assigned it. an email address and be told uh, this is a thing now. Here's how to do it, right? And so. The new version of Christmas Ruggies became uh, September's Children. Every September, a new class of college students would arrive on the Usenet, and for a brief period, right at the beginning of the school year, September's Children would flood the web. And, you know, they're not 10-year-olds getting a modem for Christmas. They're all 18 to 20, and they're really telling, they're really talking about their 100-acre wood. And it's uh, it was a it was a brief moment every year where Usenet became Usenet, unusable. Usenet just sucked. Unusenet, and, and everybody. And but again, it went the the new users went through the same process. They were culled by their own lack of comprehension or disinterest, or they were shamed and banned, or they got into the culture and learned the rules and developed netiquette and were kind of walked through it. Um, and that was more typical of my experience on Usenet, I think. You know, I'm not a person who walks into a room and says, hey, now we're doing this. Let's make it about me. You know, I'm I'm much more retiring and hesitant and, you know, want to see what the vibe is before I stick my neck out. And that was true on the early internet as well. You know, you'd show up in a place and I was just happy to have all this content, you yeah. know? I, read, I would read weeks of back posting on... Uh, you know, the new mystery science theater episode or whatever it was, um, before I ever thought of having anything to say. So I was mostly observant until I got the culture. And, and part of the netiquette of the time was that new users should lurk and not post, sit and watch, figure out how this is done. But even early on within the, the old guard, there was a kind of um there was tension between the people that felt like this should this should be preserved this is just for us um the 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 walled garden idea and people within that community who said this can't it has to grow it's always going to add new people and we have to find a way to make it accessible the more the merrier right and the the tension between those two cultures i think was evident to people that arrived who were every year the new the noobs, and you would meet people that were like, "Hey, welcome! Here's how we do things." And there would also be people that are like, "Well, now the internet is ruined," and that that became a trope of the internet that we've all been through. There right? were always lengthy FAQs. Uh, uh -huh. You know, uh, an initialism I first and learned there. FAQ was originally uh, developed. I mean that that term originates on Usenet, and it was so that so does spam, it, and it was really so that you wouldn't just show up and make all the same mistakes every new person did, or right. you know, and it would be like, look, these are the discussions we've had a hundred times. Right. You know, uh, we are not going to argue about whether uh, 
Uh, Joel or Mike is the better host of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> that topic is banned. Um, we're not, you know, a lot of people ask this, and here's the answer to the question of, um, here's what David Lynch has said about what the dwarf means on Twin Peaks. You know, and it and to me those documents were invaluable, not just as a travel guide of of how to how to be in the new space, but but also just it was um you know so much published stuff about something I loved, which didn't exist in a world before, you know fan magazines and whatnot. Yeah. Well, and you were incentivized, right? To be good. Yeah. Um, but there's something, there's something about, uh, the internet that, and it, and it starts here that is, um, kind of the collective unconscious of the internet, which is that, that it elitism is baked into the very foundation of the internet. Cause the internet was built by, IT elitists. And they just were, were going to use it to talk to each other. Yeah, and they made it for themselves. And Usenet was not easy to use. Not easy to use at all, right? And it was and it predicated on a uh, on an understanding of how it was made to even be there and to to use it efficiently. And so everything about the internet is from its very beginning meant to Built around gatekeeping. And it's interesting to imagine what it would be like if it had not been invented by a bunch of gatekeeping engineers who thought it was used for that. You know, like if you get a bunch of artists together and ask them what a what a global network looks like, you know, what would the what not just what would the interface be, but what would the culture be? I mean, the web is much closer to to what a, a non-STEM person would say the interface of a network should be. but Well, but even so, not really. I mean, if you want to really be fluent, if you want to have your own website even, it yeah. still requires that, I mean, and, and within the tech versus normies universe, people are like, well, WordPress, it couldn't be more self-explanatory. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't know, is it? It's it's not, right? It seems self-explanatory to a tech person. but I guess if Squarespace would sponsor this show, we could recommend that. That's but. a good idea, right, Squarespace. No, we can't. Too, we too, can't, no, we can't too, recommend. Too them. bad for that. Too bad for that. They they can sponsor the show at any time. Um, I I'm doing a, a a like a limited series of podcasts with my mom. I haven't released them yet, but or maybe by the time the show airs, I have. But she was an early computer programmer in the early 1960s, and she talks about the fact that computer programming at the time was often the province of women, which we've talked about a lot because. People at the corporate level thought of it as secretarial work. and the But the programmers and the idea of programming was thought of as a logic, uh, like to have proficiency in logic. To have, uh, The people that, that qualified to be programmers were people with an in, uh, intuitive sense of logic. They would take quizzes or, or tests. Well, that's not far wrong. And so it was a liberal art. It was thought of as part of the ethics department of a college or... If you're interested in Aristotelian concepts, you exactly. should be a computer programmer. And she said that the transition to thinking of computer programming as part of math and science and then engineering, which was always considered kind of a little bit of a, a lesser subclass of, of math, yeah. um, she said that that was not a natural transition but just a matter of, as universities recognized that they needed to 
develop computer programming programs, they didn't know where to put them. And it really was a question of like, well, does this go in the liberal art? Is this an art? Is this a language? Or is it a science and a, and ultimately engineering? And the engineers, as the as computer programming transitioned to more of a male world, away from a female world, it also moved into math and science and then became the province of engineers. And we grew up in a world where the internet and computers all are engineer. Uh, that's the universe, right? The, the language, the culture, engineers and boys. And she said that she watched it happen and it was really weird to everybody working in it. Like why are, she, she remembers the day that she hired her first computer programmer who had an engineering background. And she was like, I guess, I guess social media, you know, there can be islands in the stream now that can become, you know, places of a different culture, you know, they're less male places, for example. Um, you know, because social media platforms can have their own rules and aesthetics, you know, does TikTok feel male? Not really. Well, but, but we're talking about content. We're not talking about the architecture. Right. I mean, so, so to actually, yeah, to program, yeah, to work for TikTok, that would be one thing. Yeah. To build it. But to produce content, not necessarily. But, but what's the invisible thing is they, it's built to add content a certain way. Yeah. It's built with the, with a, with the process imagined by engineers and how would it be, how would the internet be different if the, if the architecture of it was not... If the philosophy department had its own internet? Yeah, and yeah. if the philosophy department had built it in order to... Because engineers build it to serve their think, their thought process. Right? This is how you would do it. You would add it via this portal. You would log in this way. This would be a password system. This is the... It's true. Know, I mean, the, the password system seems like incredibly broken today. Can, can you, you know, how ma how many of these squares have a crosswalk in it? Click, you know, like all everything about the internet is coming from a mindset. So that was baked into this this world, and the um, the original the summer the the September's children were that first wave of uh, teens who weren't just, you know, they were in an academic setting. There was now a new group of people that plausibly would join this community and, and, and be there to contribute. But there were a lot of noobs that never made, the, made it in. And again, that was me. I was at the University of Washington in the early 90s. I got my first email address, whatever it was, John Roderick at uw.edu. That's it. And uh, I never used it because uh, I, again, I, who would I, who was I going to email somebody, you know? None of your professors were using it for anything? No, I'm, uh, other, other students, but you know, I was a little older, right? I was 26 at that point and most of my classmates were 18 and they were emailing each other. And I'm sure there are emails to me dating back to then. I eventually did use uh, my UW edu address in the, in the late nineties. Cause I, cause I kept it cause I kept going to college. Um, but by that point in time, like message boards and, and, uh, the web had, had completely transformed. And what's interesting about your arrival 
in Usenet is it predates Eternal September. What's the timeline on Eternal September? Eternal September talks about the day in September of 1993 when AOL made Usenet accessible to all users of AOL. Mm. And to the people that lived in that world, there arrived upon the scene this massive influx of September's children that never went away. Because a- AOL had a few million active users. A couple million active in, in, users in the early at the time. 90s, yeah. And they, this was the era when they were sending out CD-ROMs, like CD-ROMs were piling up uh, in, in dorms around the world. Um, every magazine, every computer magazine you bought, a AOL disc fell out. I mean, do you, do you remember a time when you couldn't, when AOL discs were like sticking to your fingers, you couldn't get them off? Yes. Yeah. Um, and so the Usenet was absolutely swamped and the culture couldn't absorb all the new users. It couldn't maintain its, uh, its, um, you know, walled garden universe uh because there was just no way to integrate assimilate all of these suddenly suddenly there were a hundred of them for every one of you right and that became the eternal september became a a code that you know that people that were there used to describe the day the internet died basically it was emotionally trying for them you know, it would be the equivalent of a favorite hangout, you know, like a, a local bar that gets ruined, a local neighborhood that gets gentrified, uh, you know, maybe even equivalent to friends moving away. You know, this, uh, for a lot of people, that was a big, what we would now call parasocial space. Right. I mean, it was a big part of people's lives, the relationships they had and the time they would spend on those boards. And it's absolutely equivalent, as you say to um to IRL situations like that like you're describing but the internet then was characterized from 1993 to very recently characterized by one after another of these moments when a new group of people arrived on the internet and didn't know how it was done by the earlier group, uh, by people that were on the internet six months before you. Um, and it, and that language, and it's part of how eternal September became, um, a code, a meme, because even people that hadn't been on Usenet before 1993, even if they only got on the internet in 1999, eternal September represented a, a way to describe people that got on in 2001. Um, you think about, all of those cultures that are described as having been ruined uh, by by noobs, the people that that learned to computer program with a mouse instead of a command line, uh, were again like, oh, those are the you know those are whoever the some somebody else like young people, right? Do you think there's still equivalents today? And I just don't notice because I'm not an early adopter. Twitter. Think about Twitter when Twitter was good. That's like a like a massive way of thinking about Twitter that it was good and then it became not good. But I feel like that was not an influx of new people. You that, don't? 
I don't know. I mean, maybe I wasn't early enough to actually see the influx ruin. I kind of saw the culture change because um, kind of the politics of America changed. And, well, but you know, that was Twitter changed in 2017 for me because people started to complain about the president. But that represented a lot of uh, a lot of new people entering the marketplace, right? A lot of new voices who were either young and new or had never been on the internet, but heard about Twitter and joined it Maybe. because it felt like a, I mean, I was in, I mean, I've seen a lot of the people I like disappear, Yeah. but to me, the big change was just um, watching the people who I liked just, they still were there, but they just became sucky, shrill and shrill and sad. Yeah, That was terrible because they were troubled. But I, there was a time pretty early on in Twitter where all of a sudden there were a lot of people on there that hadn't been there before. Uh, and there was a there was a moment where um, there was an attempt to change the culture of Twitter when people were saying, "If I follow you, you should follow me back." That's the new netiquette. Yeah. And if you didn't, I follow back. It, yeah, it was it was an attempt to enforce democratization because at the time there uh, there was a feeling that there shouldn't be stars on Twitter. This should be a place where we're all equal. And so why would you have 100,000 followers and only follow 500 people? Who do you think you are? And it turns out that not everyone, I mean, the reason why that would only work if everyone has equally interesting things to say. Right. And that's, you know, as in so many arenas does not tend to be the truth. So what happened to me at the time, and I think I probably, I had what, 8,000 followers or something. And I was getting a lot of these messages from people like, Hey, you have to follow back or you're some kind of, you know, like elitist. And I, one night in frustration at getting, cause I'm too sensitive to be on the internet. I got too many of these. This is early, right? 2012 or something. And I sat and just was like, follow, 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 followed back a bunch of people. You got bullied into it. I got bullied into it. And so all of a sudden I had, I was following, I don't know what, 700 people. And my Twitter feed became unbearable instantly. Yeah. Like I hated it. You just created September. Because it was, it was just like, this is all garbage. It's just people talking about their food. And, you know, I'd gone from a thing where I was just following my friends or people that are trying to be funny. And I, and for a month or two, I just was so bummed. I'd ruined Twitter for myself, a thing I loved. And I was talking to Jonathan Colton and he said, you should never have done that. And you need to go unfollow all those people immediately. And I was like, I can't do that. That's rude. And it's going to, they're going to be mad. And he was like, do it. Most and, of them won't even notice. Won't notice. And I sat, I was, it was at, I was on the side of the stage at a show of his and I was just, um, and I don't even, it was before I had a iPhone maybe it was like, I was on a Blackberry or something and I was just scrolling, unfollow, 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 unfollow. And it was, I, it, I took it, the whole hour and a half of his show. I just sat and unfollowed people. And by the time I got back down to 200 people, Twitter was fun again. And I watched that happen over and over on Twitter. And you're right. The real bad moment was when smart people started to be dumb, but. I mean, not, not dumb, but just, you know, just using Shrill. it as an outlet for anxiety, Shrieky, you know, like yeah. everybody became justly worried at once. And then, you know, you couldn't use it for jokes and japes. But this is the internet that, well, oh, and another example of it was Facebook. Do you remember when Facebook was still, we probably neither of us remember it when it was just limited to Harvard, 
But do you remember it when it was limited to college students? I wasn't on it that early. But, I, ye- but yes, like I don't have any firsthand experience. I remember that because we, the Long Winters were on tour a lot and playing colleges. And people would come up after the show and say like, oh, yeah, you know, we were talking about your show on Facebook. You can't see it, of course, because it's only for college students. Um, uh, and I really wanted to. Like people were talking about my band and I wanted to log on. It was a message board, you know. I couldn't see it. That's so funny. It's the opposite of September. Like before it was uh, real people getting annoyed by college students. Yeah. Then when they opened up Facebook, it was college students getting annoyed by real people. Well, so for the first thing that they did when they opened up Facebook you know, they kept adding colleges, but then they opened it up to high schoolers. In 2005, <laughs> Facebook was available to high schoolers for the first time. That was their September. And there were all these high schoolers on there, and it was their September. The, the college students on Facebook were so bummed. These high schoolers in, invaded and were screwing everything up with their with their 100-acre wood jokes. And it was a – I hate to keep throwing you under the bus, but it's, it's perfectly it, illustrative. It's also a pretty good joke. It's a good joke. Um, and so there was, uh, there was a, uh, like a crisis within the Facebook community. Like, how are we going to integrate all of these dummies now? You know, they just don't get the joke. If, if you can think about being 20 and trying to have a 16 year old in your, in your private space. That's a bigger gap than, you know, 40 and 25. But then Facebook opened up to everybody and, um, and they went from being a company with a $2 billion valuation to being a company with a $100 billion valuation as a result of it. But I'm sure there, there are people who are now in their late 30s who, uh, who remember a time when you know, Facebook was a walled garden. Well, even Facebook can't handle its own volume now. You know, there's, right. there's been a series of journalistic reports about how Facebook knows internally what all its problems are, and it just can't handle them because of scale. You know, they... They, you know, if you've got a, a, you know, let's say you've got suddenly some seven-figure number of people posting in Arabic, and you're trying to, you know, keep an eye on the, on the etiquette involved, and you have no one on staff who speaks Arabic, which I think I believe was the case. Right. You know, they had zero people who. How do you moderate it? Who, in theory, were trying to moderate, you know, just millions of posters. Uh, it doesn't work. That's, that's what killed Usenet. Well, and this is, well, and also Im- posting images on Usenet. I mean, it was, there, there it d- developed a lot of problems. I think, um, I think one of the things that really hurt Usenet was, uh, recently disgraced governor Cuomo in the, in the mid two thousands, uh, went after child pornography. And although he never mentioned Usenet specifically, it was one of the locations of, Oh, like, pe- people were sending like, Images in text form over Usenet, right? And it was, and it, so it became a place where a lot of uh, a lot of institutions limited access to Usenet as part of a, a child pornography like campaign, anti-child pornography campaign. Limited access to Usenet, Not, uh, unaware of its you know broad constituency, and also as the internet became more and more web. Um, you know, as the, as the web became more accessible, you know, there's less and less reason to go on to YouTube. We just wanted to talk about Toad the Wet Sprocket. I didn't need to look at, at porn. All of this, though, um, you know, it, and this precipitates Godwin's law that the longer any conversation goes on, it, it trends toward Hitler or Poe's law that, that it's impossible to distinguish satire from 
actual extremism, um, and the and the development of a of you know the necessity, and we still haven't settled on what what emoticons what what are the we talked about it on an earlier omnibus the uh, punctuation marks that express uh, a variety of emotions the 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 triple quadruple question mark or whatever how you do sarcasm and but the the um the tribalism that it's uh, i think it's a valid question to say did the tribalism what you i guess you asked it in another form is tribalism innate to any global community because because what we're doing is is there is nothing really special about meeting on the internet it it just it recapitulates civilization was tribalism baked into it and didn't need to be because of the architecture of this early you know because it started in as an academic and elitist space and each in, each influx of new people was seen as an outsider, someone intruding, diluting it. Yeah. yeah well, and, and also transgressing the border, you know, an ancient, uh, like yeah. a prehistoric interest we have in delineating borders and keeping intruders out. And they might be the borders that serve us or even just the ones that we're used to, you know, there's something special about the existing borders. Right. But now that the internet has become, uh, like a, a, a completely tribal, place and a completely warlike environment in a lot of ways, how to rebuild it, how to reestablish, um, how to create intimacy again on the internet, how to, I mean, I think there's a lot of interest now in returning to small spaces on the internet. Yeah. I think maybe it's become more like, you know, Usenet, you created the experience you wanted by deciding whether you wanted to join, um, uh, you know, Rec Arts TV Babylon Five, or whether you wanted to join a news group about conservative politics, and you know, you would essentially be on a different internet, and that's right. kind of what we've landed on today. You know, the the shared spaces kind of went away, and you the internet becomes either through design or through the algorithm working on you, it becomes just the stuff you want to see, and you know. The great power of it always felt like democratization. Yeah. The great power of it felt like we would, it would be open to everybody and everybody would be equal. And now it's just a bunch of walled city states. I mean, they're not walled in that nobody else can enter, but they're walled in that, you know, they don't, they don't, uh, you know, new, opposing viewpoints don't leak in. Well, and the, and the scary thing is that they increasingly are becoming walled that you cannot enter. Um, there's a, a return to internet elitism where they're, they're strong gatekeeping and that, you know, it's, it's, um, it betrays the, the utopianism that we felt in the year 1999, that the internet was going to change everything and it risks, I mean, and, and people now just trying to find a safe place to talk about Babylon five. Uh, it turns out that the mods, have to litmus test everybody that shows up just to keep the trolls out. I think the utopia was the illusion. When you think about how long the more, the more real world internet has lasted, you know, there's, there's kind of been 
how long has it been now since Eternal September? It's since almost, 1993, it's yeah, almost it's been, been 30 almost years. 30 years. Whereas, um, you know, the idea that this was a, a sunny, hopeful space lasted, you know, maybe five to 10. So we just happened to come from a time when we thought the internet was good. Uh, so we're acting like that's its natural state. The internet was always awful. We were just briefly deluded about it. And that concludes Eternal September, entry 428.1C1533, certificate number 47957, in the Omnibus. Uh, Despite uh, now being in year, what, 28 of Eternal September? um, 29, we just crossed, just crossed into 29. Oh, that's true, it's September now. This is, we're, t- we're, we're not going to, you're not going to hear this till November at the earliest, but uh, we're recording in, at the end of Eternal September. The, uh, we are uh, at Omnibus Project. You could find us there um, in the internet's many walled cities. Um, I'm at Ken Jennings. John is at John Roderick, mostly in his own um, fiefdom of Patreon. With a with a gray message board if you're looking for early internet. Oh yeah, but if the, you want nostalgia. But it's a walled city. You have to. You have to. It's uh, literally a, a pay to play. Yeah, you have to um, join the Patreon at five dollars to have access to the message board. But highly recommend. It. I mean, that's something people will do because there's such a shortage of um, of places on the internet. Where you know? yeah, smart. And there are a lot of future well, links there. One. And there's a new Futureling site uh, up on Discord. Do we say Discord with the accent on the second syllable Dis- now? Well, in order to Are distinguish it from di- Discourse. Discord or Datcord? It's confusing to a lot of people. Discourse is an open source uh, message board. but it No, but I guess it's it also requires a subscription. Discord is a video game message board that's become a social media site. Yeah, there are future links on Discord, on Facebook, on Reddit, Twitter, Twitter, all your favorites. You can email us at beyondmusproject at gmail.com. Email was never uh, uh, communitarian. It was never social, so it didn't it didn't no. get bad. I feel like every, uh, the, the idea that the kids don't do email is bizarre to is me. Is that true? Yeah. They, they just text each other? They just text. Well, you know... It, Email, just the way we get annoyed by phone calls. Email they get annoyed did, by emails. did get bad because you remember when your parents would send you uh, like copies of copies of copies, you know, forward, 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 forward <laughs> right. of, of emails of terrible, like <laughs> terrible Tombow Day memes. I saw somebody's, uh, I saw somebody posted their mom had sent them a, uh, <laughs> what even was it? Like a, um, a printout of a photo of a, of a screen cap of a phone screen. They, they, they printed it out and sent it to them. Yeah, that's helpful. In a, in the mail. In the mail. I have I have some stuff. My mom my mom printed out. You remember uh, Flickr would have like a like thumbnail page of all the photographs in somebody's Flickr, and she screenshotted it and then printed it out and put it in a file. You could send us physical items. They don't have to be printouts of screen caps, but you could send us those. I guess to Omnibus Project at PO Box five five seven four four. Shoreline, Washington. What do you got over there? 98155. Uh, Neil has sent us a copy of this quintessential 60s-looking paperback from your grandma's house that he says appeared in the little free library outside his house today, and he thought it would be perfect for us. It's called The Officer Factory by Hans Helmut Kirst. Uh, Murder, Rape, and High Treason. The Shocking Story of Nazi Killing Machines and Their Women. Tell you what, if you let any conversation go long enough and it turns to Hitler. But the funny thing is, I guess in the 60s it was okay to have... Um, 
Sexy Nazis. Sexy Hitler. Oh, for yes. sure. Like they're they're you know they're appealing to our our basest instincts by adding. The back even says makes Peyton Place seem like a kindergarten. Mm-hmm. So if your complaint about uh, Peyton Place was that this seems like a kindergarten, it was naughty, but it didn't have enough um, Nazi high command in it. Well, yeah, there were a lot of early porns that uh, that were based around the idea of a woman named Helga who wore an uh, an SS uniform but with a very short skirt and uh, and stockings. I wouldn't know. And had a little had a little whip. I don't know how I know that. Yeah, you were you were in pornography before Eternal September. <laughs> Here are some of the characters you'll meet: the general and his secretary. He slaved to produce Nazi soldiers. She begged to be treated as a woman. Hmm. I feel like those things are not uh, parallel at all. <laughs> the captain and his cadets. He admired their iron discipline and loved their athletic young bodies. Is it cadets with a K? This is getting good already. No, but it could be. The wife and her warriors. Her husband was only half a man, but she had her choice of a thousand others. Ye gods. This this seems pretty good. If you had a choice of thousands, how would you narrow it down? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, Maybe it really doesn't matter as long as they're not your impotent husband. I suppose not. Uh, thank you so much, Neil. We will we will study up on the officer factory and all the naughty goings on naughty. therein. Um, and of course, uh, the best way to support the show is not to send us pulp paperbacks about Nazi sex. Mm. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. But really, your first impulse, I think, should be to go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject and see if any of the... Donation layers there, levels there uh, match your budget and your level of affection for the show. I mean, if you have a lot of money but don't like the show, don't give. If you have a lot of affection for the show but no money, again, you can't give. But if there's some level at which your uh, disposable discretionary income matches your affection for the show. That's exactly what you're looking for. By all means. You're looking for the sweet spot. Your affection for the show is the x-axis. Your uh, amount of money is the y-axis. Only you can answer. These are very subjective questions. And the more you love the show, the more meals you will skip. The more the more uh, luxuries you are willing to avoid in order to uh, to support the show. Yeah, like, I mean, o- in only some you cases, can answer that. Question. There are a lot of people out there who just are like, "What do I do with all this money?" But yeah, the the the, the people in the in the great middle who are like, "I money matters to me," but also I get two shows a week from Omnibus. That's two, four, six. Eight shows a month. At least. That's eight shows in a February. Eight Nine shows. or ten in an October or a November. Right. So at the five or ten dollar level, think about when it, you know, it amateurizes over the course of all the shows you get. It's really chump change. I think I just implied there could be a ten omnibus month, there? and that is, I believe, not true. Really? Even if the first of the month falls on a Tuesday or a Thursday. There's still never going to be a 10-episode omnibus, but there could be a 9-episode omnibus. No, it's, om- no, it's possible. Month. It's possible. Science has produced a 10-omnibus month, March 2022. If In a 31-day month, if the first is a Tuesday, you will get 10 omnibuses that month. And if you're a donor, you'll get the extra addenda show. Well, how many good things happen to you 11 times a month? Not that many. <sighs> not that many. I mean, in some cases, maybe... Um, I'm not married, so I, a lot of things are right off the list. <laughs> well, if you are married, I mean, 11 <laughs> times a month still seems high. Yeah, that's true. Quite, quite honestly. That's true, yeah. Um, so we appreciate we appreciate the generosity of our listeners. Thank you for keeping Omnibus going. It would have ended years ago without you. <laughs> it would have ended 10 years ago, six years before it started. We're now in the eternal September of Patreon. Future links from our vent. You know, I should say there was a conversation on the discourse uh, 
uh, not to plug my uh, Patreon at johnroderick.com or no, Patreon slash johnroderick, patreon.com slash johnroderick. Uh, there was a discussion within the discourse, uh, on the one hand, a desire to have more people join the group. And on the other hand, a lot of people said, no, 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 you get more people in here and it's going to get ruined. It's too special. And, and as, as you speaking as someone whose income relies on the number of people and not on the quality of the discourse, well, less on the quality of the discourse. Well, but I did, I did feel a real common cause with the people that were like, please don't invite all of the, um, the rabble. And I understood what they meant. You know, there are a lot. There are a lot more uh, women on the on the discourse than there are on the Facebook page, for instance. Um, Interesting. And so, and I'm not talking about omnibus. I'm talking about yes, Roderick focused things. And the you know they there actually were people that were like, this is a safe space. Please don't get a bunch of yellers in here. And I was like, yeah, all right. I'm not on the internet anyway, so how do I know? Just give like a void comp test to every person who comes in that can determine if they're a bot or Are a, you a especially toxic male or, <laughs> or whatever. There's a turtle on its back. What do you mean? Uh, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs>